Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. Questions about heaven, questions about hell. Heaven is easier to believe in than hell because the way hell is presented in scripture, it is a very bleak, in fact, the bleakest of prospects, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It'll be part 12 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor will join us. And then it's this week in Pop Christianity. Today, evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war with Pastor Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Todd. This question comes from Beverly in Idaho. A question from her grandson saying, can angels be touched? Yeah, I tell you what, that is such a fantastic question. And Beverly, when you, when you listen, thank you for, one, welcoming the question of your grandson and for encouraging that. And I want you and I want your grandson to know this, that your question has just captivated me. I mean, I spent several days thinking about this because I just found it to be so fascinating. So what I did, I started searching, searching the Bible, right, and researching what Bible scholars before me had to say about this. And I'll tell you what I found. The Bible, as far as I'm aware, never describes a person reaching out and touching an angel, at least not with that sort of direct language. But it does describe angels touching people. So let me read you just a couple of verses here, a couple of texts to show you that. So the first is from Acts chapter 12 where Peter is in prison and the angel breaks him out. Okay, so Acts 12, beginning of verse 6, says this. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. 
And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. So obviously, the angel touched Peter. Another one from 1 Kings 19. This is where Elijah is running away from Queen Jezebel, right, running for his life. And it says this, And Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Okay, so for other people who may be interested in in a couple more texts where you could see where angels are touching people, uh, I'd have you check out Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. Genesis 18, there you have these two angels, and then you have the angel of the Lord, so the pre-incarnate Jesus, right? They're appearing to Abraham. And then in the next chapter, you have angels dragging Lot and his family out of Sodom. And then in Genesis 32, you have Jacob wrestling with the pre-incarnate Christ, right? The angel or the messenger of the Lord. So, like I said, we definitely see angels touching people, and it would seem distinctly possible that the people touch the angels too. But as far as I'm aware, the Bible never describes people touching angels, like not that direct sort of statement. But I mean, I suppose though, if you take Genesis 32 with Jacob, where he's touching the angel of the Lord, and that would be not what we traditionally think of as just an angel. He is wrestling the pre-incarnate Christ, so in that sense, most certainly he's touching. So I think that would be a way to start getting at an answer, but I'll offer this to you, Beverly, and to your grandson. This is the way these sort of questions work, because your question then started to get me thinking about a related question, and it's this question. Do angels have bodies? Because if they can touch people, does that mean they have bodies? And if they can eat, like they do with Abraham in Genesis 18, do they have bodies? And before I answer that question, because I started to research it, I do want to offer one insight here that may be helpful and may surprise a few people. But angels, at least the narrow term angel in the Old Testament, they're never described with wings. And I know your brains are all exploding right now. The creatures described with wings in Scripture, they're not called angels. They're called spiritual beings, cherubim, seraphim, or just to use the Hebrew word that's used in a variety of different forms over and over, just Elohim, or little g, gods. These creatures, are, they're members of God's divine counsel. They are described with wings, but they aren't technically called angels. So these are just different kinds of spiritual beings. And I know <laughs> all of us are thinking, but wait a minute, every Sunday school picture I've ever seen, every painting I've ever seen, they, all, they always have wings. I know that, but think of the wings that you see in paintings or in the Sunday school handouts. Think of them like the halos that you see over the apostles that are in paintings. They're identity markers. It's saying these guys are apostles and these guys are angels. But I think we all know the apostles didn't have halos and the angels didn't have wings. In fact, in scripture, angels are often just described as men. Not that they were men, but they appeared as men. Like, so, example, when you get to the resurrection and you have uh, the women going to the tomb early on Sunday morning, the account from Luke just says, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And we're to understand that these were angels. Now, back to the bodies question. I thought, well, <laughs> and Beverly, you're going to love this, and so will your grandson. I thought, 
Well, I'll just go look up what these really smart Bible scholars before me said about it. And do you know what I found? They're not sure, okay? They have to spill a lot of ink to say it, but they're not sure. Now, I'm gonna geek out just for a second on this question because some of you might appreciate this. And Beverly, this is probably more than you bargained for, more than your grandson wanted. Let me just geek out for a minute and go a little bit deeper. So I looked into uh, Thomas Aquinas and his Summa because he talks about this question quite quite in depth. He actually has this sort of whole conversation where he has point and counterpoint, and then he offers his opinion. And here's what he basically says. He says, angels do not naturally have a body. They are not of the substance but of the accident to its being. So those of you who have a little bit of a theological or philosophical training, you got to love this substance accident language. But it's going to show up again in a second because I'm going to quote Peeper, and he uses the same language. All right. His point is, these angels sometimes assume bodies, and these bodies perform, in some sense, the function of bodies. Luther, in his table talk, he calls angels a spiritual creature created by God without a body. And Peeper then, he says this in his Christian dogmatics. He says, the angels are spirits, that is, immaterial beings. And then he quotes Jesus in Luke 24, where Jesus says, a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see I have. And then uh, he quotes uh, from Paul in Ephesians 6 about evil angels, where Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So the human bodies, Peeper says, in which angels, incorporeal by nature, appeared on certain occasions, and then he quotes Genesis 18 and 19, were only assumed forms. And then he puts the Latin there, unio accidentalis, or accidental union. So it's that same sort of substance accident language that Thomas Aquinas used. He goes on, they're assumed forms by which the invisible angels rendered themselves temporarily visible. Then he talks about the consumption of food was real eating. It was not necessary for the nourishment of these assumed bodies, but it convinced men of the reality of the presence of the angels. All right. So back to your grandson, Beverly. Here's what I want to say. Number one, in some sense, the angels were touched and the angels did touch. In some sense, they took on bodies. But here's what I want to commend your grandson for. I want to encourage him to keep asking these sort of fantastic questions. And I want to encourage him to go ask his pastor these great questions. It's great to ask me. I'm, I'm thrilled you ask. But go talk to the your pastor, the one in, you know that you live with in three dimensions. Ask him these questions too. I think that's fantastic because these are the sort of questions that will draw him and draw you into Scripture, into Christ's church, into wonder and awe. And I'll just end with this on this question. What captures you, what captures your imagination? So what captures your imagination captures you. So let Christ and his word capture your imagination, and you will spend your life captured by Christ and his word. The next question, do you think God is in one of the galaxies or in heaven above the galaxies? I love when kids ask these sorts of questions. And, you know, I would say again, and I think this is one of the reasons why so many adults enjoy these sort of questions, because we ask these sorts of questions. And, and these, are not, these are not silly kid questions. These are really thoughtful questions. Where is God? Where is heaven? That's a good question. So here's what I say to the child. This is a great question. Let's answer from a couple different angles. First, words like above don't really have meaning in space. What is up and what is down in space? 
These are relative terms that we use to orient ourselves on Earth, but in space, up and down, above and below, get very difficult to figure out. Second, God is a spiritual being, so he's not made of stuff. So let's not think of God then as living in a different galaxy, but as existing in a different dimension, perhaps. As such, you can't travel to this dimension like you could to a different galaxy. So no matter how far we travel into space, we won't arrive at God's place. Or maybe space simply exists in God, like he holds it all together. Whatever the case, God exists in a different dimension than the dimensions in which we live and move. So I end there, and I do want to acknowledge then that you do have texts in Scripture, for example, of Jesus looking up into heaven in Mark 6, and then in Luke 9, it talks about Jesus was going to be taken up into heaven. So you have this sort of up language. And also in Psalm 113, it says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high? who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. So I do want to say in one sense, it is fine to think of God above the galaxies, but I think we have to be careful not to push this too far. And we also need to acknowledge that, yes, Jesus took his body to heaven. So in some sense, there needs to be some sort of three-dimensional nature to heaven. Some even go so far as to propose that people in heaven now, the souls in heaven now, may have some sort of temporary body. And I don't think we can be definitive on that. I think it's fine to say maybe, but I think we have to leave it at that. But the fact of the matter is, here's the thing we need to realize. The Bible just doesn't give us GPS coordinates for heaven. So I actually looked this up on a couple different sources, and I love the way I love the way theological sources sometimes put things. So you look up in the Lutheran Cyclopedia, and it says, Scripture represents heaven as a place, a house with many mansions, everlasting habitations, a city, a new heaven, and new earth. It makes no attempt to locate heaven. All human efforts to do so must fail. And it, <laughs> this makes me laugh sometimes, whoever wrote that. It just, it just seems so, shut the door, don't ask any questions, don't be curious. I just wish we wouldn't close the door so hard. I'm not saying we should go outside of Scripture, but to basically tell people, don't think about it, I don't think that's a helpful thing. Then Pieper, he actually has a few things to say about this. I think it's, it's helpful just to point out what Pieper says. He says, The heaven of the angels and saints is not a created locality, but the condition of the blessed vision of God. And then he goes on a little bit later in his dogmatics, and he says this, The location of heaven, he says, This can no more be fixed than the location of hell. Every attempt, therefore, to locate heaven geographically is folly. As the place of the damned is wherever God manifests his eternal wrath, so the place of the blessed is wherever God reveals himself in his uncovered glory face to face. So again, this idea of of seeing God's face is the idea of heaven. But here's what I want to close with, and this, this is really important. So heaven is where God is. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring some of our Lutheran theology to bear here. But God is present in his word and sacraments. We beautifully confess this in our liturgy for the Lord's Supper. So we wrap up this, the preface before the Sanctus, and we say, Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying. And then, if you look at that Sanctus, like especially in Divine Service 3, it's very clear. Look what's happening there. So, we sing these words, holy, 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 and this is the song of heaven. And then what, what do we connect it to? 
Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this is the song of earth. Okay, so look what we're doing. We just got done saying, therefore, with angels and archangels, all the company of heaven, right? Everyone in heaven, we're going to worship you. We're going to join earth's worship to heaven's worship. So what do we do? We take holy, holy, holy. That's the song of heaven. And we combine it with Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's the song of earth. And look what we've done. We've put them together in one song. And we're saying heaven and earth are connected, joined together in the sacrament of the altar. So in a very real sense, heaven is here. God is here. This is a marvelous confession. So we may not know where the heaven is, where Psalm 113 says, God looks down from. But we can know where heaven meets earth, and that is in the sacrament of the altar. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question, in heaven, do we age? Lutheran Talk. The cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music. Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. Grace, Faith, Scripture and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western Civilization, one student at a time. Polygamy, slavery, the expulsion of the Canaanites. These are some of the topics covered in the latest issue of the Lutheran Witness magazine. The theme is Difficult Teachings of Scripture. An annual print and digital subscription is less than $25. Find out more at cph.org slash witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness Magazine. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. Pastor Connor, in heaven do people age? 
Isn't that a wonderful question? I don't know how you can be a Christian, not at least think about some of these things or just be curious. I guess maybe adults who are listening, here's my encouragement for you. Don't stop having the curiosity of children. When Jesus calls us to be childlike, I mean, he's not telling us to be childish, but childlike, one obviously is dealing with trust, right? And the, the idea of reception is what he's talking about, that we all stand in a position of childlike reception. But I think we can also be have childlike curiosity and just not be afraid to ask these sorts of questions. Because here's the thing, adults, we all like to think, well, it's just something you're supposed to know and you shouldn't ask about it. But if you don't know, ask. The only way you're gonna know is if you ask. So engage people in conversation and go to your pastor and ask him these questions, text him, email him, talk about it over the fellowship time after worship. This is such a great thing to talk about. And again, it captivates our imagination. But here's what I say to the child. I love this question. The answer seems to be yes and no. So let's think back to God's original creation with Adam and Eve. Did God create them to get old and die? No, he created them to age, as in mark birthdays, but not to get old and die. So let's pretend the fall never happened. Adam and Eve would probably mark the passage of each year with a birthday celebration, or for them, a creation day, but their bodies wouldn't weaken and wrinkle with age. They would be eternally strong and healthy. Now, let's go to the resurrected body. The Bible says that this body will be raised imperishable. So the resurrected body isn't going to die. I suspect we'll mark the passage of time, but we won't see time wear on our bodies so that we get weaker and feebler. What's the case for those in heaven now waiting for the resurrection? Well, since they have no body right now, which we're aware, I don't suspect age is negatively affecting them. I'm sure they have knowledge of their earthly life and age, but while they wait for the resurrection, they aren't experiencing the negative effects of time. So again, the answer is yes and no. We will age, but age won't weaken us. Okay, so that's my answer to the child ends, and then I'm just going to expand on it just for a minute. So I, like I said, I love to think about this, and I used to have a shirt that had a on its tag had this little slogan, and its slogan was forever new. Now, ironically, the shirt is long gone. Surprise, it didn't stay new. But that slogan has always stuck with me because it always makes me think of the new earth. I think that gets at part of Paul's point about imperishable bodies, bodies that don't get old and wear out. I mean, we will have bodies, think about it, that are forever new. Now, if that doesn't just shoot excitement through your veins, then you're probably not conscious. I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately as I've watched summer get old. I've watched the grass get old, the hostas in our landscaping, they've gotten old, the garden, it got old, it withers around the edges, right? The colors fade, the newness goes away, the tenderness and the freshness, it gets crusty and stale. So here's what I've been thinking. The same thing happens to our bodies. They get old. They wither around the edges. Our vibrancy, it fades. Our vivacity, it diminishes. If it hasn't happened to you yet, listeners, it will. 
If you're young, you have certainly watched it happen to your parents or grandparents. Our bodies just get old. But the promise of the resurrection is that our bodies will be forever new, imperishable. And I find that so exciting. Now, it's another question altogether to ask what age will be in the resurrection. Will we be raised at like age 28, like 28-year-old bodies? Or will children who died be raised as children and grow up on the new earth? We don't know. But here's what I love, and here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. We can imagine the joy as we get to imagine. Now, we'll have to wait for a lot of this, but we can know this already. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44, he says that the resurrected body will be raised imperishable, glorified, powerful, and Holy Spirit empowered. Now, we've talked about some of this before, but these are such hope-filled words. In fact, these are four words that I think every Christian should memorize. Imperishable, glorified, powerful, spirit-empowered. Whatever age that is, that's what our bodies are going to be like. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. The next question up, will there be instruments on the new earth? Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. The radio voice of the Lutheran faith for the 21st century. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Kevin Hildebrand, Cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Contarai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu slash gsi. 
The weather is changing, the leaves are falling, and you'll soon be setting up your church's Christmon tree this Advent. But there's a problem. Remember, Aunt Mabel's Christmons are from the 80s. They're made of styrofoam, the glitter has dropped off, and they're being held together with toothpicks. Rush on over to Ad Crucem to fix the situation. We offer all the old designs and a whole lot of new ones. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. He's walking us through our series, Kids Have Questions. The next question, will there be instruments on the new earth? Ah, love it, love it, love it. Okay, here's what I say to the child. I fully expect there will be. Multiple times throughout Scripture, instruments are mentioned in the active praising of God. So I would fully expect instruments to be on the new earth. Will they be the same instruments from our experience? I don't know. Maybe. But maybe we'll invent new instruments, too. So that's where my brief answer ends for the child. But think about this for a second. Okay, just consider uh, some of the instruments that are named already in the Bible. The harp, the lyre, the trumpet, the flute, the tambourine, the cymbals, the pipe, stringed instruments, horn, bells, and on and on. Many of these instruments in Scripture are used in the praise of the Lord. Will they be on the used on the, the new earth? Well, it seems like they will be. I mean, it seems inconceivable to me that instruments wouldn't be used to praise and worship the Lord on the new earth. They are now. Why wouldn't they be? Or this is another way to come at this. And this, this kind of question is applicable in lots of these sorts of questions. So if Adam and Eve had never sinned, would they have invented instruments? Well, I think the answer is pretty obvious. Well, of course they would. So I fully expect heaven to be a very musical place. And that, that excites me because I love music. And I will also tell you, I have a great longing to learn how to play instruments. My children play various instruments. I mean, in the family we have, and there are multiples of each of these, but pipe organ, piano, French horn, trumpet, trombone, oboe. And I see how these instruments, how it opens their hearts to praise. I think of the hymn, when in our music, God is glorified. And it just fills my heart with such joy and longing. So I watch my seven-year-old. He's really taken to just sitting down at the piano on his own. And so he's taking lessons, but he'll go back after his practice time and just play on the piano by himself. And he experiments with chords and harmonies, as like the hymn says, as he discovers a new dimension in sound. And actually, for listeners, if you're interested in music and maybe exploring some of this, there's a wonderful thinker out there. His name's Jeremy Begbie, B-E-G-B-I-E. He's written a lot on this. I recommend his book, Theology, Music, and Time. And you can actually hear this fantastic interview with him over on Upstream uh, with Shane Morris. He has a great, great interview on that podcast with Jeremy Begbie. Truly a marvelous interview that deals with music, and I, I just highly recommend it. But so Begbie speaks about how music opens our hearts to longing, and this may have like echoes for some of us of C.S. Lewis and how he addresses this with beauty. So we see this actually all over the place in our hymnody. So Begbie calls this home, away from home, back home, but better. So here's the idea. In your traditional four-line hymn, so you start at home with this introductory musical idea. You often repeat it in the second line. In the third line, 
you leave home. So you head off into a dissonant chord of some kind or a, a note that needs to be resolved is the idea. And even people who know nothing about music know that you can't end the hymn on that third line, that that won't work because you know that it needs to be resolved. So you need to return home. And that's what the last line of our hymn does. It takes us back home, but it ends in a fuller chord. Now, if I was musical, I would love to play this like on a piano or an organ, but just take the hymn, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. So bear with me, I'm going to squeak out a few notes just vocally right now, but I want, to, want us to hear it because this is so powerful because we do this all the time in worship. We probably don't even know we're doing it, but music is actually carrying a message in addition to the words themselves, right? So those of you who know this hymn, it's one of my favorites, right? You probably one of yours as well, right? It goes like this. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. So that's line one, right? Oh, my soul, praise him for he is your health and salvation. Line two just repeats that basically. Here's line three. We're going to leave home. Let all who hear. Now, everybody knows you can't end the hymn there. You're away from home, man. That won't work. You've got to come home. You've got to come back. You've got to resolve this, right? Even if you're not musical, even if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, you know that you can't stop the hymn there. So the hymn goes on and says, now to his temple draw near, right? Joining in glad adoration. And you're like, oh, good, good. We resolved it. We came home, but better. If you're playing on the organ, you get a full chord at the end. So if you're paying attention, you can immediately see how theology and human longing maps onto this. So just very simply, creation, fall, redemption slash restoration. This is embedded in our music. It's absolutely marvelous. But my point for now, music and the instruments that produce it, they're an integral part of praising the Lord. So it just seems inconceivable that we wouldn't have instruments and music on the new earth. How will God reward those who are most faithful? Oh, this is so great. I love these sorts of questions about rewards. And I know, I know that Lutherans, we get a little nervous when we start hearing works and rewards. So just bear with me. I'm going to do, uh, I might surprise some of you because I'm actually going to quote Lutheran sources on this. But let me answer the child first. Great question. Some of God's rewards are built into his creation. So make a habit of speaking truth to your parents and you'll have a better relationship with them. Make a habit of defending your classmate's reputation, and you'll have a better relationship with him. Tell lies, steal, and hate, and you'll tend to experience negative things. But some of these rewards God gives to a life of faithfulness. He doesn't specifically specify exactly what they are in Scripture, but we know that they will give the recipients greater ability to give glory to Jesus. So that's where my answer ends. And we've discussed rewards a little bit before. And I think I highlighted where this shows up in the confessions, Article 4. I mean, of all places, Article 4. And just a reminder to listeners, Article number 4, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, or the Defense of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 is on justification. This is the beating heart of salvation. This is the most ardent defense of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and it defends reward for works. 
So I don't think I actually read the quote last time that we talked about rewards for works, but I do want to read this section this time, and then I'm going to read a little bit of what Pieper says in his Christian Dogmatics, where he just quotes Luther, basically. And I think this is so important, especially for us Lutherans, who seem sometimes to break out in hives every time we hear the word works. So I'm going to quote at length from Apology for Unjustification. They write this, Moreover, we concede that works are truly meritorious, but not for the forgiveness of sins or justification. For they are not pleasing to God except in those who are justified on account of faith. Nor are they worthy of eternal life. For just like justification, so also being made alive takes place by faith on account of Christ. Works are meritorious for other bodily and spiritual rewards which are bestowed both in this life and in the life to come. For God defers most rewards until he glorifies saints after this life, because he wishes them in this life to be strengthened through mortifying the old creature. The gospel freely gives the promise that a person is justified and made alive on account of Christ. However, in the law, rewards are not free. They are offered for works and owed to works. Since, therefore, works constitute a kind of fulfillment of the law, they are rightly said to be meritorious. And it is rightly said that a reward is owed to them. And these rewards produce degrees of return, according to that passage in Paul, which they're quoting 1 Corinthians 3.8, each will receive wages according to the labor of each. These degrees are rewards for works and afflictions. Okay, so that's where the Article 4 quote ends. And I want to go on and get to what Pieper says, and because he picks up on this. And again, it's a little bit lengthy of a quote, but because this is so important, I want uh, listeners to humor me and just listen as I read what Pieper quoting Luther says. Pieper first says, there are no degrees of bliss because all the blessed are perfectly happy. That is, every one of them will find full contentment for himself in belonging to God. However, Scripture does teach that there are degrees of glory corresponding to differences of work and fidelity here on earth. And then he quotes Luther. Luther says, It is true. There will be a difference in yonder life according as they have labored and lived here. For example, St. Paul was an apostle, Samuel or Isaiah a prophet, etc. One will have greater brightness than the other because he worked or suffered more in his office. Thus, everyone will have his distinction and glory according to his office. And still one God and Lord will be in all, and one in the same joy and bliss. In his person, none shall be more or have more than the other. St. Peter, no more than you, are, you and I. Nonetheless, there must be a difference because of the works. For God did not do through Paul what he did through Isaiah and vice versa. For that reason, everyone will bring along his works, through which he will shine and praise God, so that the people will say, St. Peter has done more than I or another. This man or this woman has led such a fine life and done such great things. In short, all are to be alike before God in faith and grace and celestial bliss, but they are to differ in their works and their honor. And then Pieper adds, self-evidently degrees of glory in heaven will not call forth envy, but only praise of God because sin has been completely eliminated. 
Okay, end of quote. But I want people to see these are actually very hope-filled words. And the reason is because God sees. God knows. I mean, I hope Peter is rewarded for his faithfulness. I hope Isaiah is rewarded for his faithfulness because that is right. Let me give you a real-time example. So we have some friends who live in Michigan. They are lovely Christian people. Several years ago, the husband suffered a debilitating stroke, and he's in his 40s at the time. So they had four, well, not quite all teenagers at the time, but teenagers and below at the time. It has been hard. It has been a grueling effort to get function back, and only partial function at that. And his wife has been by his side faithful the entire time, the whole process. And it's been beautiful to watch her faithfulness to her husband and to her children when it meant self-sacrifice like most of us will never know. And I hope God rewards her faithfulness because that is right. That's exactly what Scripture promises. God will reward faithfulness. God will reward those who have suffered in faith, who have faithfully confessed Christ in hardship. And I hope that we can all hear that and say, that is right. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions, with Jonathan Connor. Speaking of God's Word and children, the Bible is the primary textbook at Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas. Every subject is taught from a biblical worldview. Faith Lutheran provides a classical Lutheran education for pre-K through 12th grade. Learn more at flsplano.org, Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. On the other side, a question about self-defense. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. Issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4life.org. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com 
now. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions, with Pastor Jonathan Connor. Pastor Connor, here's another one. Will you go to hell if, in a shooting or something like that, you defend yourself instead of giving your life for others and the attacker died? Okay, I know that's a really convoluted question. I want to give a little context to that because this grew out of a conversation that we had in class and and the child obviously is trying to capture some piece of that conversation. And, and this is how it comes out with kids lots of times, even adults sometimes. When they're trying to respond to a conversation and they're trying to capture it, it gets a little bit clunky and uh, confusing. So the idea here is there was this prolonged conversation that came up in class and kids are trying to sort out the difference between killing and murder and the potential call to give your life for our neighbor or to defend ourselves, right? And what would happen if the attacker died in the act of self-defense? So that's kind of the conversation that we're having. Now, I do also want to point out what's going on in the life of middle schoolers or junior hires, all right? So these are seventh and eighth graders. I like to call this the what about stage, right? So what about this? What about that? So we were covering the command do not murder. And they were asking, well, what about self-defense? And then if in self-defense, if the attacker dies, so what happens then? So the question may seem random to us, but I want people to appreciate how this young mind is trying to sort out the whatabouts. So also to appreciate, this is actually what they're doing nonstop in this developmental stage. And it's right and it's good. So parents and grandparents, if your child or grandchild is incessantly asking the whatabouts, don't stop them. I mean, I know, look, I have kids. Sometimes they just do whatabouts just to be annoying. I, I get that. But try to not discourage the whatabouts. That's the developmental stage they're in. And so if they're asking you the whatabouts, that's what you want. And if you don't know the answer, go talk to your pastor. But let's encourage the whatabouts, even though it sometimes seems like it can be incessant. But here's what I say to the child. Great question. First, let's distinguish between killing and murder. Murder is done intentionally. Killing may be done in self-defense or accidentally. Where intention is lacking, a person's not guilty of murder. So for example, if someone drugged you and then used your hand to pull the trigger on a gun, you would have been involved in killing a person, but you would have not murdered the person. Now let's talk about sin and forgiveness. Murder is sin but it is not an unforgivable sin. Further, like I said in class, taking God's name in vain is a horrible sin. In many ways, it's worse than murder because it profanes, it treats like garbage, the highest and holiest name in existence. And just pause for a second. Those of you who know your large catechism know that Luther called taking God's name in vain, the greatest sin you can commit outwardly. I encourage you to read that section in commandment number two as Luther talks about that. But going back to the child, I said, my point is this. We can't look at some sins, especially the sins that we don't do, and think, oh, those sins are really bad. I'm glad I don't do those. Those people probably won't be saved. No. All sin is bad. All sin is ugly. All sin is a rebellion against God. All sin separates us from God and does harm to our neighbor. So the answer for sin is to confess it to Jesus and to receive his forgiveness. Murder is forgivable. In fact, Paul, the guy who wrote many of the books of the New Testament, he was a murderer. But here's the important thing. 
He was a forgiven murderer. Now, back to your question. The Bible never says, don't defend yourself or others. What it's saying is, don't deny Jesus. Sometimes self-defense ends with someone dead. This is tragic, but it isn't sin. And even if it wasn't self-defense but murder, it is forgivable. All we need to do is confess our sin and receive Jesus' forgiveness. Okay, so the concern the child was trying to really sort out here was, can I defend myself? Or do I have to give my life for others or I won't be saved? So let's acknowledge that there may be a time to give our life for our neighbor. Now, I will also point out, if you're reading scripture on the vocation of husband, in very real ways, men, husbands, we're called to do this every day for our wives. That's what scripture teaches. Paul's very clear in that Ephesians 5. But speaking more about the actual literal dying, we may be asked to do that in an ultimate way. And we need to be ready to do that. But I don't see anything in scripture that forbids self-defense. There may be some nuance to tease out here between self-preservation or self-first and self-defense. So men shouldn't be pushing women and children out of the way so they can get on board the lifeboat. But even so, I'm pretty sure scripture would still have us put on the breathing mask that drops down from the overhead bin before we put it on the child next to us. So I think those are some things maybe to tease out and to, to nuance out. But I think the greater concern for now seems to be twofold. Number one, confess Christ. Number two, serve your neighbor. I think if we internalize that, the rest will work itself out in life's whatabouts. Do you think people actually go to hell and have people gone there already that we know of? So let me just start with the answer to the child. And I think it's important in these sorts of questions. I know that hell makes many of us uncomfortable, but I think it's important that we just give a very sober, direct answer. So I say to the child, yes, I am most certain people go to hell. Why? Because Jesus says so. Here's what Jesus says about it in Matthew's gospel. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Jesus is talking about the coming final judgment. People who reject Jesus and die are confined to a spiritual prison where they await the final judgment of God who will condemn them to eternal hell. Obviously, this is not a happy thought. Understand, no one is in hell against his will. People only end up in hell for rejecting Jesus. In effect, they choose hell by telling Jesus they want nothing to do with him. So that's where the answer ends. And I want to offer, I know that hell is a very unpleasant thought for most of us. And I'm not sure hell should be a pleasant thought. But let me just read just, just a few verses on hell from Scripture. Right? And this, these are just the first ones I'm going to read just from Matthew's Gospel. But I, my point is I want to illustrate just how real hell is to Scripture and why we cannot ignore it just because we don't like it. So the first from Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Then in Matthew 8, Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Matthew 13, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, that's just a handful. You can read about it in Mark and Luke and John and Philippians and 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter and Jude and Revelation. Scripture, simply, it's pretty straightforward. Hell is real. And I know for many of us, it's a very distasteful doctrine. But I also want us to appreciate this. We need to know how culturally bound our distaste is. Because in some parts of the world, the idea of a loving, forgiving God is distasteful. So my point is we can't judge doctrine by taste. It's not ice cream. It's reality. Hell is justice. Some people say, though, but the punishment exceeds the crime. Eternity is too long. Let me give you an example maybe to answer that question or that objection. So I'm going to describe an act that will be repeated in multiple times just to different people. Same act, just different people. If you hit your sibling, so if you're a child and you hit your sibling, my guess is you're going to get in trouble with dad and mom. Maybe you'll have a timeout. Maybe, like in my house, I like to hand out jumping jacks. Instead of making kids sit for five minutes, I make them do 25 jumping jacks or so forth. So you're going to get punished. Now, next, let's hit a classmate. I bet you're going to end up in the principal's office. If you do it more than once, you may end up suspended. Same act, but now the consequence has escalated. Now, let's walk into the office and hit the principal. I bet you're probably going to be suspended and maybe even expelled from school, and there could be legal ramifications for that one. Now let's pretend you're going to walk into your state house and punch your governor. <laughs> Same act, but I bet the penalty will be worse. And now let's pretend you're going to walk into the White House and punch the president. Same act, different penalty. Here's what we need to understand. Sin is evil committed against an eternal being. See, we have broken an eternal law. Are we going to suggest that an eternal penalty is unjust? I mean, it sounds a lot to me like Ezekiel 18, where people were saying, Yahweh is unjust. And Yahweh says, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Yahweh is just. Hell is justice. But Here's the absolutely astonishing thing. Justice for sin has fallen on Jesus. I mean, this is the good news that Scripture enthusiastically announces. This is the heart of Paul's gospel announcement in Romans chapter 3. Justice for sin has fallen on Jesus. God has acted righteously by being just and the justifier in Jesus. And then in Romans 8, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, no hell, right? So instead of trying to remove the discomfort of the doctrine of hell, why don't we just announce that there's no condemnation, no hell, for those who are in Christ? Let hell stand. 
Jesus does, and let the gospel be heard because Jesus does. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You'll find a link to Pastor Connor's blog with all kinds of resources on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks, Todd. In Hour 2 of Issues Etc., we're going to be talking about evangelical reaction to the Israel-Hamas war. Most of us see a geopolitical event there, tragic in every aspect. Many evangelicals see it as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. We'll see what Greg Laurie and Tiff Shuttlesworth have to say. And we'll get Chris Rosebro's evaluation in This Week in Pop Christianity. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.